welcome back to IDRAN Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. And today's hashtag Jill's Pin is from Planned Parenthood because I am really concerned about abortion and I am concerned about all of our rights, not just the right to choice, but the right to contraceptives, the right to same-sex marriage, the right to same-sex sex. I'm very concerned about all these issues, and so I'm wearing this pin uh, to support them. Our guest today is someone who is a traditional conservative, but isn't afraid of criticizing Trump, and we'll talk to her about that and more. Her name is Sarah Isker. Currently, Sarah serves as a staff writer at The Dispatch, uh, a conservative media platform and co-host of the Advisory Opinion Podcast with David French, someone who's also appeared on our podcast before. She's also a contributor to Politico and ABC. She is a political analyst there. Um, Sarah graduated from Northwestern here in Chicago and from Harvard Law School. She clerked on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and practiced law while being very involved in political campaigns, first for Mitt Romney, and then as deputy comms director for the RNC, and as deputy campaign manager for Carly Fiorina. In 2017, she joined the Trump administration as the spokeswoman for the Department of Justice uh, from then until 2018, when she and Attorney General Jeff Sessions left. Welcome to iGen Politics, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. It's so exciting. So I've long interacted with you on Twitter, so it's exciting to see you through a screen for the first time. Um, I so know. let's begin maybe by talking about something that um, perhaps might be foreign to young Republicans now who saw and I guess continue to see Trump as the leader of the party. And I, I'm just wondering, what did the Republican Party stand for when you were a student um, in the early 2000s and affiliated with the party? That is a good question. I mean, so I was not a very political, I definitely was not a political kid at all. Uh, really, my first introduction to politics was in college, and I entered college in 2000, right before 9-11, really. And so mm -hmm. up to that point, uh, you know, for all the time I'd been alive in the Reagan years, the conservative party was this three-legged stool that had been developed um, since the Goldwater era, right? There's the social conservative stool, the fiscal responsibility stool, and the limited government stool. Um, or, you know, instead of fiscal responsibility, sometimes that's the foreign policy, Cold War stool, like leg of the stool. But really those four things, limited government, fiscal responsibility, you're against communism in Russia, um, and uh, this social conservative aspect. Interesting. And so that was the early 2000s. And then did the Republican Party change at all when you then became communications director for the RNC in 2013? So I had worked on the I'd worked on Romney's primary campaign in 2008 and then his general election campaign in 2012. And in the wake of the loss in 2012, even though it was a pretty predictable loss historically, on the one hand, Barack Obama had relatively low approval ratings. Although, and I, I say relatively because they were low compared to other presidents historically at that point, but not particularly low in the trend that we had seen of presidents having lower and lower approval ratings, a trend that continues to this day, by the way. Um, but he was an incumbent president and incumbent presidents are very, very hard to beat. Nevertheless, when Romney loses in 2012, a race that Republicans thought would be really close and or that he would win up until the very end. You talk to people on the Romney campaign and if they're telling you the truth, like on election night, people really thought that was a real um, a real competition. And it turned out not to be. I mean, my job was recount prep and there was a plane waiting at Dulles to, you know, a private charter plane waiting to take me and a bunch of other people to whatever state had the recount. And obviously there wasn't a recount. And I think that the Republican Party found that really jarring. Of course, this also comes in the wake of the Tea Party movement, which started in 2009 and was a movement that had policy aspects to it. But a lot of it was vibes, right? It was anger mm. at the establishment. And you have Ted Cruz uh, becoming a leader in the party around that time. And um, this whole like sort of new generation coming up in the Republican Party. 
and so post-2012, I think the Republican Party kind of is in the wilderness. The establishment of the party, and I don't mean that in the pejorative sense, I mean that in the literal sense of like the Republican National Committee has this quote-unquote autopsy report where they say, like, we need to make wholesale changes. We need to be more inviting to the Hispanic community, soften our stance on immigration, less social conservative stuff, um, stick to the sort of fiscal responsibility, debt, deficit, limited government side. And it turns out, by the way, that if you really look at polling and try to dig into what parts of the Republican platform are uh, you know, most popular, this idea that is held by people in the Acela corridor that if that really the vast majority of voters are socially liberal and fiscally conservative and the two parties have just split those that Democrats are socially liberal and fiscally liberal and Republicans are socially conservative and fiscally conservative. And that's why we have this equilibrium. And if someone would just come in the middle and be socially liberal and, and fiscally conservative, they would just win everything. It turns out that that group is the smallest group of voters in the country, uh, despite what it feels like maybe, you know, between D.C. and New York. And so that was sort of the post 2012 Republican Party is that Acela Corridor idea. It's so interesting to hear you say what you said that the autopsy said, because it seems to me that the party has done the exact opposite of following anything that was suggested in that autopsy. Oh, I mean, it, <laughs> that's almost like an understatement. I mean, exact opposite. <laughs> I don't know what can be more exact opposite than exact opposite. Um, truly 180 degrees, but that doesn't happen in a vacuum. So the RNC puts out that autopsy report and, you know, you have Paul Ryan and the sort of reform folks within the Republican Party that are championing that. The Young the young Guns was the fundraising group, but they had a, a name for themselves. McCarthy was part of it. Eric Cantor, some of these names that might mm -hmm. sound familiar. And, um, and <laughs> the base of the Republican Party, the voters of the Republican Party really emboldened by the Tea Party movement and feeling a lot of anger after the 2008 financial collapse and at Barack Obama. And then that total disconnect with what the people in D.C. are saying in the Republican Party, who are the leaders of the Republican Party, it's that disconnect. The anger, the 2008 financial crisis, Barack Obama winning re-election on the one hand, happening in the country, and these people in D.C. saying, let's just soften our stance on immigration and be more socially liberal. That space is what creates the space for Donald Trump. One of the things that you mentioned that I found interesting is that even when you were RNC comms director, there were still policy aspects. And I guess as just a young person now, like I remember the 2020 convention, both Jill and I, we were delegates on the DNC side. But when we watched the 2020 convention, there was no policy platform. And I'm wondering if you can pinpoint anything that the Republican Party stands for now. Um, and if not, like what caused that change? Was it Trump or um, other factors? So I think both parties are experiencing the political realignment that we've seen happen a few times in the country's history. And so I actually think both parties um, would have trouble pinpointing a single platform that everyone in the party would agree on. But um, I, I still think there are some common factors that put someone in one camp versus the other. I just think those factors are pretty open to change right now in a way that they usually aren't in our sort of political equilibrium system. Um, and again, we've seen this at moments of big tumult in the country's history. Uh, you know, 1860 election, obviously a time where there's four political parties, four p presidential candidates. Um, and then the parties are going to shake out after that and after the Civil War, of course. And then you're going to see some realignment happening again in sort of the post-FDR time period where the Democratic Party becomes what it what we think of it as today, the sort of shorthand versions um, that you would maybe caricature the Democratic Party as. And the Republican Party is going to become what it is today, again, in that sort of Goldwater time, Goldwater to Reagan, so like late 60s to the... Uh, you know, late 70s is when it's going to solidify into what it is. So today, um, I think the Republican Party is obviously realigning on the fiscal 
leg of the stool. You have a lot of Republicans in the party who are real fiscal hawks, think we shouldn't be spending money we don't have, borrowing money from China's bad, all of that. And then you have other parts of the Republican Party breaking away from that for the first time. And you obviously see that in Donald Trump, his love of tariffs. That's Republicans like free trade. Donald Trump doesn't. Uh, Republicans like tax cuts. I think that's fading as well. Uh, Republicans now are for spending as much money as the Democrats just on different stuff. Um, Something where I think Republicans by and large are in pretty firm agreement is immigration, for instance. They want to stop illegal immigration uh, before figuring out what to do with the folks who are already here illegally, for instance. Um, I think where there's still some disagreement is what to do about legal immigration. You have a lot of people in the Republican Party would like to increase legal immigration, make it easier to come here legally. And then other people in the party, of course, who want to decrease all immigration, legal and, of course, illegal. Um, And, you know, so you can point to different issues and, and watch that realignment kind of happening in real time. And it's fascinating. I mean, this is a if you were just a political science geek, this is the time to be alive because not that many people get to live through party realignments. You mentioned anger as something that was important in this realignment. Can you talk a little bit more about what the anger is at and who it's from? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you could shorthand without being too inaccurate that a lot of Uh, Our politics, at least in the moment, is like (laughs) no policy, only vibes. And um, and the vibes are definitely anger. I think, again, you can look back at 2008. And the reason I say that in the financial collapse I'm referring to, not um, Barack Obama's election, the 2008 financial collapse creates everything we're seeing now, in my opinion. And the reason my main data point to support that is that you see similar stuff happening in other Western democracies as well. And so you can't just say that it's Donald Trump, for instance, because that doesn't explain France or the UK. So you have to come up with an explanation that can marry with all of those. And obviously the financial collapse is just going to have a huge impact on so many people's lives. And the biggest part of the political realignment that we're seeing right now is around education. Um, The blue collar, working class, non-college educated voters that used to be the backbone of the Democratic Party. I mean, post FDR, if you're a union member, you belong to the Democrats. That is flipping on its head. The Democratic Party now has a larger share of the white college educated vote than they do even among voters of color. So the Republican Party is becoming a more multiracial coalition than it used to be, more working class among white voters and non-white voters. The Democratic Party is becoming wealthier, whiter, more college educated. Um, And yeah, I mean, the financial collapse, of course, is going to to press that forward, Barack Obama's president, when a lot of working class people lose their jobs, lose their pensions, lose their retirement savings, it's all gone. And that's going to create a lot of anger. That's really interesting. So do you, I'm wondering, do you still consider yourself a Republican now? So I am a registered independent and I don't work for any Republican candidates. I, I will not work in partisan politics again for the rest of my career, I'd imagine. Um, You know, we're talking about party realignment. Who knows what the two parties will even mean or what their names will be in 20 years. Far be it from me to um, to make some sort of lifelong promise on this podcast. But I don't work in partisan politics. I'm not a registered Republican. Um, You know, I sort of voted how I see it and try to call it like I see it, too. So you once were in partisan politics and you served as um, campaign manager for Carly Fiorina and were quite vocal against Trump and the as the Republican nominee back in 2016. Talk about why you supported Carly in 2016 and what you believed uh, were the dangers of Trump then. Well, it's important to note that I started working for Carly Fiorina when it was still a joke, the idea that Donald Trump might run for president. In fact, I probably start working, I worked for Carly starting December of um, 2014. At that point, we weren't even really talking about the possibility of Trump running. A few months later, you know, there's like, he's starting his own rumors about running and it's a a laugh. Um, It's a punchline. And he had been a punchline. 
You know, Barack Obama had mocked him at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. McKay Coppins had written his sort of famous piece about what a joke the idea of Donald Trump running for president was. Uh, all somewhat regretful moments now. So why I worked for Carly? Um, I, you know, I, I mentioned all that about Trump because it's not like I was picking between Carly and Trump. Not that I would have picked Trump, but like that wasn't even a thought. Um, it was going to be a huge Republican field. I'd worked for some of the other Republican potential candidates at that point. Um, but I'd never worked for a female candidate. And to work for someone like Carly, who was a trailblazer for women, conservative, it, um, it was just such an amazing opportunity, I thought. And by the way, for anyone listening out there who... Uh, is a campaign or aspiring campaign operative. It was really different. I don't like to see everything through the lens of gender, but when it comes to your day-to-day job and you're on the trail and you're traveling all day, 20 hours a day sometimes with a person, you know, working for male candidates was great and I loved my time on the Romney campaign and all the Senate races I did. But at the end of the day on the Carly campaign, I could go to her hotel room with a bottle of Chardonnay and pop into bed with her and we could like have a slumber party. Um, I can't do that with Ted Cruz (laughs) Um, on so many levels. (laughs) Mitt Romney and I didn't get in our PJs and like jump on the bed and talk about how like our hair looked terrible. Um, So, and you're just going to have a different bond with someone based on that experience. And I'm sure men feel that way working for men to some extent. I don't know what y'all do, but presumably, you know, getting to go to the bathroom with your candidate as a man uh, at a urinal is going to be a different bonding experience than me going in with Carly Fiorina as we touch up our lipstick. (laughs) That's a weird answer to your question. (laughs) No, that it it makes total sense to me. I, I can see it. uh, Although some of those images of you jumping into bed with Ted Cruz is just Pretty disturbing. horrifying. I mean, yeah, it's sorry. very, very, very disturbing. But you did go to work for him, didn't you? I worked for Ted uh, right out of law school. I clerked on the Fifth Circuit after I graduated. Um, and uh, clerkships, uh, you work for a federal judge. I was working for a, an appellate judge. And I had met Ted Cruz. He was at that point Texas Solicitor General. And he said, hey, I want to run for Attorney General of Texas. Do you want to come run my campaign? And I said... You know, this was, by the way, speaking of the 2008 financial collapse, this was very early 2009. And, uh, you know, I had a law firm offer, but a lot of my friends had already been laid off from law firms. You didn't know how long that was going to last. And I thought, gosh, let's go take a job where I definitely know that I'll get laid off. That's like the fun of campaigns. You know, you've only got a job for 18 months max. Great. Okay, so. Moving on from Ted Cruz, um, (laughs) given your criticism of Trump during the primaries and the general election, you ended up working in his administration as spokesman for Department of Justice under Jeff Sessions. Uh, So let me ask you a couple of questions about that. Did you know Jeff Sessions before you took the job? Is that how you got connected or was it something else? I did not. Uh, It's interesting. A lot of the senior staff at DOJ, we all knew each other. I knew Rod Rosenstein, Rachel Brand, who was the number three, Noel Francisco, who comes in as Solicitor Mm -hmm. General. Um, And we had all worked at the Department of Justice before. So uh, I had worked in the Office of Public Affairs and the Office of Legal Policy during the Bush administration. And um, so in some ways, it was like an amazing family reunion. Uh, These were all people who I just looked up to my whole career and had worked in and around. So that was a a real treat and an honor. But no, I don't think any of us actually had a relationship with Jeff Sessions. He was sort of putting together the legal conservative dream team. Interesting. Um, And I'm just wondering, once you got there, you were in a tough position because you had to deal with the fact that his boss... Uh was constantly attacking your boss. Uh And um, what was it like being in a position where you're arguing against the president of the United States, who is ultimately the boss of your boss? Yeah. Um, And, you know, believing in the unitary executive, the idea that the president is actually responsible for the entire executive branch. My boss as well. 
you know, I felt uniquely positioned to have the role that I had because, um, you know, other than the attorney general and well, as it turned out, the acting attorney general, Rod Rosenstein. So I was the third most visible person probably at the department of justice. And, you know, most people in any job, right. Need to be thinking about their own future. And my past at that point, I'd spent 20 years working in Republican campaigns. And I knew going into that job that I was never going to work on a Republican campaign again. Um, And that, you know, I was going (laughs) to, that might be the last job I was ever going to have in the political realm, no matter what. And it provided me a lot of freedom to do what I thought was right. You know, there's such a difference between working on campaigns and working in a government job where you're paid by taxpayers. My job, my job description was to get information to the American public as accurately as I could um, within legal restrictions, for instance, about the work of the Department of Justice. The reporters who covered the department worked one door down from me, uh, very similar to the White House and um, the State Department and the Pentagon in that respect. And, uh, you know, I would joke that the attorney general works on the fifth floor and he has a balcony that um, overlooks Pennsylvania or Constitution Avenue. Sorry. And if you look left on Constitution Avenue, it's the beautiful dome of the Capitol, you see, and everyone there hated us. And if you look right on Constitution (laughs) Avenue, it's the White House. And everyone there hated us. And so we were, we were literally stuck in the middle and getting attacked from all sides. And there is something that is actually very freeing about that. Um, and it builds a lot of camaraderie, frankly, to feel like you're in the trench with the people, the other people who you think are trying to do the right thing, trying to seek justice and do right by the American people. Now there's a tension because we work for the executive branch. President Trump... Uh, was our boss. And so you're certainly not ignoring orders from the president, contradicting orders from the president. But at the point that the president um, (laughs) is simply saying mean things on Twitter about the attorney general, he has a choice to fire him, but we certainly can push back up until the point that he does. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this idea that you take orders from the White House, because I would have a very different view of the role of the president with this one unique cabinet, um, which is that the independence of the Department of Justice is something that has been valued uh, since time immemorial. And that while the president- Since Watergate. It actually is a relatively new-ish phenomenon, but certainly post Watergate, that is the norm. Well, that's 50 years. So that's a pretty (laughs) long time, okay? (laughs) It is still a long time. And even if you take that as the starting point, it is something that is valued and that seemed to be uh, violated in the Trump administration. And and then there were certain policies in addition that got to be problems aside from the the recusal, which was the starting point, I think, of the, the tensions between the White House and the Department of Justice. But let's look at, for example, the child separation policy. I mean, looking back at that, do you feel like there's something that could have or should have been done to prevent the enforcement of that? I mean, now that we still have thousands of children unreunited and some who may never, ever be reunited with their families. I want to split this into two questions and and talk about the first part of your question first, because the role of the Department of Justice is so unique and complicated, and you can have very philosophical conversations about what the role should be. There have been proposals to actually break out the Department of Justice to be an independent agency because of its law enforcement component and criminal prosecution component. And I mean, we could literally spend an entire hour talking about the pluses and minuses of, of independent agencies in general and whether the Department of Justice should fit into that, but it isn't an independent agency. Um, And so in that sense, and I mentioned the Watergate thing, not to, not to be cute actually, but to point out that um, there's lots of things we take for granted in our politics that aren't nearly as old as we think they are. 
the Department of Justice itself isn't all that yeah. old, really. Uh, the Attorney General obviously existed, but like, for instance, having a building for the Department of Justice, having the FBI, um, more recent than you'd think. I feel really, um, torn isn't the right word because I, I have that strong feeling about it, but the, the importance of having independent law enforcement it should be obvious to anyone who thinks about it for two seconds. And the sort of antagonism between the Department of Justice and the White House is nothing new. I mean, Watergate's very obvious. But think about the Clinton years. Janet Reno had a terrible slash non-existent relationship with Bill Clinton and the White House. They leave her in for eight years because they're terrified of her and feel like they can't remove her. But um, no love lost between the Clinton White House and the Reno Justice Department there. And so that tension has existed through a lot of administrations. And at the same time, I think the idea of having an independent law enforcement component um, that's not accountable to the people and politically has so many of its own dangers, I think it would be unwise. Okay, so where does that leave us with the Department of Justice? Um, you have a department that then relies on the people in it doing the right thing thing. And I think you will see this a lot in, in our conversation, but just in, in the larger conversations that we're having as a country right now, you can't rule your way out of having good people in power. You can't make enough laws. You can't have enough regulations um, to, to fix someone who has corrupt purpose. And so when we think about the Department of Justice, I don't think it should be an independent agency. And at the same time, I don't think that the president should be, for instance, directing investigations into his political enemies to see if he can find dirt on them. And so where what do you do? And the answer is you rely on hopefully the American people electing moral, ethical people of character into the White House. And you rely on the president to pick moral, ethical, good lawyers to run the department who, if the president or one of his advisors ask for something that is unethical. Um, and by the way, not illegal. I mean, unethical, because there is a difference. Yeah. You can ignore an illegal order, um, but an unethical one, maybe not. And instead, you want the person at the Department of Justice to say, no, Mr. President, I won't do that. Um, either I will convince you why you shouldn't want that, or I'll resign. Um, or they just, you know, resign. Are the or they get fired. <laughs> or they get fired. That's fine. Um, I actually think that's the right way. That's the, the way the system should work. And so um, I think when I look back at the Trump administration, there were, and you can see it play out on Twitter. I'm not really speaking out of school here. There were plenty of times where the president said, I want X. And there were plenty of people in the Department of Justice who said, you know, Mr. President, I'm not going to do X. Let me try to convince you not to order me to do X because I'll resign. You saw that in the testimony that we saw around January 6th, where the Department of Justice senior folks, the acting attorney general, the acting deputy attorney general, and the head of the Office of Legal Policy go into a meeting in the Oval Office with Jeff Clark, who is at that point the head of the Environment uh, Division. Jeff Clark's trying to persuade the president to make him acting attorney general so that he can contest the election. And the other three members of the Department of Justice, they're not ignoring orders from the president. They're simply saying, Mr. President, we're all going to resign if you do that. Here are reasons why you shouldn't do it. This guy isn't a real lawyer. Everything he's saying to you is false. He will not get a single vote at the Supreme Court for his ideas. Um, and he's not a real litigator, to which one of my favorite law lines ever. I will be Oh my God, this, this is my forever. favorite. I know yes. what you're going to say. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. I love it. It's uh, my, the best line of all the hearings. And Jeff Clark says, I've done litigation. I'm, I'm an environmental lawyer. And Rich Donahue, then the acting deputy attorney general, says, great, we'll call you when there's an oil spill. <laughs> that is the best line. I love it. It's, it's such a sick burn. It's like, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but I want to answer your second question also. Yeah. I don't want people to think I'm ignoring that because I think that's important and, um, and hard. What do you do when the president ask for a valid policy that you disagree with. And I think you could put in the travel ban. A lot of people mentioned that one as well. 
Um, but there's plenty of others that, you know, don't make headlines. The coal memorandum about marijuana enforcement um, came up. Um, a, I think it is naive and unwise to tell young people that they will ever work in politics for someone they agree with 100%. I saw a lot of people become really disillusioned during the Obama administration because they had projected onto him all these things that they believed. And I think that's bad. I Don't go into politics because you think you're going to get 100% of what you want. Frankly, I think that's a lot of the problem we have in D.C. right now is everyone thinking that when they arrive, they get to have 100% of what they want. Okay, but then there's a difference between, um, you know, maybe it's not what you want, maybe it's not a policy you want, and a policy that you think is... Um, immoral or or something to that effect. You know, there's been an inspector general report about what happened with the, the family separation policy from the Department of Justice side. There were multiple agencies involved, the Department of Homeland Security, Health and Human Services, the White House, obviously. I I hope you don't think I'm dodging your question when I say the entire policy apparatus that happened with that failed. I think that people up and down the chain of command, it's a failure, um, a policy failure, a failure to understand how the policy would be implemented and at least some of what the implications were. Um, So I don't know how much you want to get into that, but yeah, (laughs) I don't think that people on the front end totally understood what would happen in the back end. And was there a way to stop it once you realized what the consequences were? I think it was stopped really quickly after it was clear what the consequences were. The Department of Justice drafted an executive order to rescind the policy that was signed by the president within days. So in in that vein of just advice to young people, you wrote this um, really interesting piece in The Washington Post back in December of 2020. And it was basically about the shallow state and how you thought that you could help but really you obscured the reality of a Trump presidency. And this was all when the big lie was being propagated. And um, I found it fascinating. And it makes me curious, what advice do you give young people who might be facing the same situation? You know, those who want to do good, but the principle they work for may not be completely aligned with their values and don't do a good job of leading. I think it's a really, really, really hard question. And I wish people would take the difficulty of the question more seriously and that we could have more nuanced conversations about it like this one. I appreciate what you guys do. Um, because I published that op-ed on roughly Christmas Eve, like right before Christmas Eve of yeah. 2020, before January 6th. And you're right. My point was, on the one hand, we want good people going into government, regardless of, you know, whether they agree 100% with the principle. In fact, we probably want people going into government specifically who don't agree 100%. Having that voice in the room is important. At the same time, when it came to Trump, I did feel like, um, you know, for instance, most of my time over 18 months was spent protecting the Mueller investigation and, and people convincing the president not to fire the special counsel. Was that smart? Maybe the president should have fired Mueller and then the American, he wanted to, then the American people could have made a decision um, about him sort of knowing the the policy and personnel he wanted to have in place. Hmm. So I write that op-ed. And then January 6th happens and you see both again, right? That what happens when the good people aren't in the room and the extreme importance of the few good people who were in the room. You know, can you imagine if Jeff Clark had been the acting attorney general? Um, And so how can you not be very grateful to the people who stuck around and put their careers on the line, their livelihoods on the line to be in the room that day? And do you, I guess, looking back, do you wish you had stayed? Is there anything that the good people could have done? (laughs) When you talk to people in the Trump administration, I think one of the things you'll hear the most is um, nobody personally wanted to stay in terms of your day-to-day life. Um, I probably lost about 
between 25 and 30 pounds um, during that 18 months in the job. Um, didn't really get to sleep a lot. Definitely didn't get to shower a lot. Sorry, coworkers. <laughs> um, and maybe TMI. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, but so nobody's like, oh, personally, I just really wanted to stay in the job. But you'll hear time and again, someone's spouse or their you know, best friend say, but please stay in the job. So you asked me that question and it's so hard to answer. Like, do I wish I had been there on January 6th? Yeah, part of me does. Do I think that I could have made a difference? I, I don't know. No. Yes. No. Yes. I, it's just really hard. Yeah. And so after leaving the DOJ, you were then um, hired as a political editor at CNN in February. But I found it interesting that you never joined the network full time because opposition arose to your um, overseeing journalists covering, uh, covering the 2020 election and that you worked in the Trump administration, didn't have, I guess, quote unquote, traditional journalism experience. Were you surprised by that? Uh, <laughs> there are certain news stories that um, think about various uh, heavenly bodies that collide with our atmosphere like the vast majority bounce off or like Apollo 13, right? They were like, if you don't hit it within that 1% angle, you'll just bounce off and like float into space and everyone will die. Um, but if you hit it at that exact right angle, you will penetrate the Earth's atmosphere. And like, that was that story, man. It just was bad timing because obviously we know tons of people from previous administrations have gone into journalism. Of course they have. That was a pretty silly argument that people were making. Um, their argument ended up having to be, ah, but the Trump administration is different. Uh, okay. But then of course, Fox News had people from the Trump administration. And they're like, yeah, but Fox News is different. Like at the point you keep having to narrow your argument down, I think you've lost most of the, the gist of it. Um, you know, and there were things that were very frustrating about the coverage, of course. Uh, none of the major news stories, and this is, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, None mentioned I'd gone to Harvard Law School, written law review articles, published in a neuroscience journal, like this idea that I fell off the comms truck and I'm some like bimbo press secretary who's never written a word was um, silly. And yeah, I mean, that's hard stuff to read sometimes, but you sort of accept that you're part of a narrative that other people are trying to move and it's not really about you. Um, but it is what it is. I wanted to <clears throat> have an off-camera role. Um, it was never a particularly defined role. That was another thing that was not accurate about the news coverage, this idea that I was going to head up the debates or something. What? No. Uh, <laughs> but that's how jobs go in this business. You know, if you want to work in politics, whether it's on the campaign side, the, the Hill, the government side, the media side, this is a rough and tumble environment and you have to be willing, I think, to be any good at your job to always tell the truth. Um, and that's just to maintain your own credibility. It's not some higher calling. It's like you will, you will burn your own credibility by lying even one time. So always tell the truth and always be willing to get fired for it. If you're not willing to get fired from your job, you shouldn't be here because you will pull your punches, you will screw up, um, you can't do any of this work very well if you're constantly thinking about what your next job's going to be. Well, will I anger that person and then I'll need a job from them later? And so that's how I've lived my career so far. And there's ups and downs to that. Sometimes you do get fired. <laughs> so let's let's go back to 2020 and talk about um, what led millions more people to vote for Trump compared to 2016. Uh, why do you think that happened, given what we knew by 2020? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of it is that political realignment that's happening because you're going to continue to see those numbers move um, in 2024 as well, I think. And while those numbers, let me back up, the largest plurality of voters in the United States are non-college educated white voters. So as that group shifts to the Republican Party, what you will see over time is an equilibrium where the Democratic Party figures out how to piece together a coalition of other voters. But you're not going to necessarily see it happen in one cycle. 
And so I think what you're seeing right now is the Republican Party is having an easier time picking up white, non-college educated voters as they feel completely alienated from the Democratic Party. Then the Democratic Party is having building a coalition from the rest of the American voting base, Um, because, again, the largest plurality is the plurality that no longer feels welcome in the Democratic Party. Sorry, it's so, kind of a political science answer and not very well, much related no, th- to Donald Trump, but in part it's because I don't think it is very much related to Donald Trump. Well, uh, OK, but there is a lot related to Donald Trump, which is, you know, you have a lot of Republicans who have defended his big lie. The facts are clear. They were clear before the January 6th hearings. Uh, anybody who really read source documents knew what the truth was, and he knew what the truth was, but they defended him anyway. They defended him even after the insurrection, and they're still defending him. So what does that do to the Republican Party? I mean, nothing good, as we've seen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think that you look at the days and weeks after January 6th, and you see something really remarkable. You see 10 Republicans in the House vote to impeach a president of their own party. And for the first time in U.S. history, you see a member of the Senate vote to impeach a president or vote to convict a president of his own party. That's never happened before. And I think um, that shows the uniqueness of Donald Trump in several respects. The uniqueness, perhaps, of um, how he tried to come into a party and take it over rather than coming up through the party. I think that's unique. Um, And the unique threat that I think people believe he faces Um, now, then from that point forward, yeah, you definitely see a huge struggle within the Republican party of the role Donald Trump should play moving forward, whether they want to talk about January or sorry, January 6th, 2020 election, whether they want to move forward, isn't really up to them as long as Donald Trump has the microphone and it's not just a microphone, which is also important to remember Donald Trump is raising so much of the money on the right that if you want to be able to fund a campaign, you either need money from Donald Trump or you have to be able to use his name for fundraising. And we don't have to get into the nitty gritty of how fundraising actually works. And this is on both parties in terms of small dollar email lists, all those text messages you get that are annoying. But There's an asymmetry right now where the Republicans have burned, it's a term of art, but like have burned most of their email lists by overuse because of the Trump folks emailing and emailing and emailing those small dollar Republican donors, where what you have to do to get the attention of a small dollar Republican donor is so much bigger, angrier, outragier um, than on the left right now. It's a huge problem on the right. And again, we talk about like, oh, it's, We talk about Donald Trump in the media because it's easy and we all see that. But that money part behind the scenes is a big, big problem. And you can really trace it back to the rise of the small dollar donor, which was caused by the fall of the big dollar donor, which we were all sort of, you know, oh, get money out of politics. We passed the 2002 Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. It guts national political parties which again, I would have told you would have been a really good thing. The national political parties were bad, right? They were creating this team mentality. Uh, And it guts the large dollar donor programs. And it turns out both of those things had this byproduct that was really dangerous. We now don't really have national parties. I know we think we do, but not from a party structure standpoint. That's created this free-for-all where there is no accountability. There's no one who can prevent Donald Trump from being the nominee. And... Small dollar donors are incredibly dangerous to our politics because now every candidate has to market themselves to someone who is going to be turned on by attention, outrage, anger to give five, twenty dollars. It's it's been really corrosive. Well, I I don't have the facts to know. Um, I would put Citizens United and the rise of the PACs as much more dangerous, but I, I can't take that on right now. But I'd like to have you back to talk about that more. Just and, in, in fairness, I'd like so you're right, but Citizens United only exists after Bikra. That it was a challenge to right. Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act where you don't need super PACs 
unless you already have the limits that Bikra created. Super PACs are in, in also very, very corrosive. I'm not going to disagree with yeah. you one bit okay. there. Okay. So uh, let me turn to your expertise in communications, because one of the things I'm most concerned about is that we are living in this world of alternative realities, which are not realities. Only one of them is real, because facts, you're a lawyer, you know, facts are facts, and there aren't two sides to the facts. There's only one side to the fact. So I'm, I'm concerned that the January 6th hearings have presented a very, to me, very uh, great narrative that's very persuasive, but Fox isn't carrying it for the most part. And so no matter what's presented, the majority of Republicans aren't going to hear it or aren't going to believe it because they totally accept everything that Donald Trump says. And so from your communications expertise, what could either the committee or some other organization be doing to reach moderate Republicans, anti-Trump Republicans, independents? How, do, how does the message get out? How do the facts get communicated? Well... Um, let me tell you something that I find to be the most depressing thing that's happened in our politics, um, maybe since January 6th, to be very honest with you. And that is the Democratic Party funding campaigns of far right yeah. Republicans in primaries. Yeah. And it's um, you cannot I'm going to quote Rick Hassan here, who's an election lawyer. You cannot have a sustainable democracy where only one party believes in democracy and that party is trying to get rid of all the people in the other party who believe in democracy. So the Democratic Party targeting the people who voted to impeach Donald Trump to make sure that they don't come back to Congress because they think that will hurt the Republican Party is so um, uh, demoralizing and um, hypocritical um, and so, so, so cynical that I think it so wildly undermines what the January 6th committee is trying to do. And I believe, by the way, that they are, are believing what they're saying and are really trying to get that word out. But why should anyone believe them when their party leadership and structure is spending uh, $4 million in Colorado, close to a million dollars in a House race in Michigan that they just defeated Peter Meyer, who had voted for impeachment. It's um, <laughs> it is I, I know people will roll their eyes at this. To me, it is just as bad because it means you don't believe that there is a real threat to democracy. And I do. Well, we agree with you. And so does The New York Times, who today had um, an opinion piece saying how bad it was that Democrats had supported the far right wing. But that doesn't answer my question about how can the facts get out? Because the facts are the facts. Well, and the, but the message You have matters. Trump supporters. Well, if you, if you have all the Trump supporters still believing the big lie, then there's a failure of communication somewhere. And I'm just wondering how to overcome that. Yeah, but you see my point, right? When you're telling them, not you, but when the Democratic Party is the one saying it's a big lie, they clearly don't believe it if they're then funding the people who believe in the quote unquote big lie. That's that's the problem with what they did. They ruined their own message. You cannot get through that message to someone when the messenger looks like they're lying to you. Um, and, you know, I think there's other problems with the on, again, I, this is <laughs> this is true in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party where. And it's been true for a long time. It's just that now it's become really important to um, not to use misinformation as political weaponry. And so, for instance, saying that certain things can't be said, um, the most obvious example, right, was uh, after the, um, you know, March 2020, when the COVID pandemic starts, this idea from the left that you could not say or question the idea of where the virus came from, that it might have come from a lab in China. That's not healthy because by shutting down the conversation, you don't win the debate. You simply make those people angry. They don't stop believing what they're believing. Um, and I think, you know, we have some more data, by the way, that it didn't escape from a lab in China, that it actually yeah. did come from the wet market. And so it's not that the thing you're shutting down 
is true and you tried to shut it down. Don't shut it down. Win the debate. And both sides have stopped trying to persuade, stopped trying to win the debate, and instead said, you can't say that anymore. And I think the left, the left's illiberalism on that front has been very corrosive. And so, yes, it's why people on the other side shut down listening to them, because it's not just facts. Um, the messenger matters. Trust matters. Credibility matters. And uh, <laughs> the the truth is, and anyone, you know, who like lives in the world knows facts. Um, there is no universal like truth of a situation that we can all at least be aware of when you think about, you know, I think about it in a criminal law case. One side, you know, says you killed him. That's true. The other side's like, yeah, but it was self-defense. That's true. And the other side says, yeah, but you were wrong. You weren't really under threat. That's true. Like all of these can be facts. Um, and one side can be saying facts, but it's not the whole story. And that's where I think we're missing things right now. People yell about, you know, well, these are the facts. Yes, but it doesn't mean it's the whole story. And the more we can treat people like adults and trust them and talk about the whole story, whether it's COVID or monkeypox or January 6th or anything else, you will get more people trusting you and earning that credibility back. Well, I, I, this one will take us a lot longer to discuss because I definitely think there are clear facts that are unrebutted. And even in your example of the criminal trial, at the end of the day, you know, it it's, goes back to Areopagitica and John Milton. In the free marketplace of ideas, you get the truth. And so in a criminal trial, you have one side presents and another side answers and then another side. And at the end of the day, you can come up with the truth. And if you have a case where someone says, well, it was self-defense. Then why are then people the wrongfully says, convicted? Well, people are wrongfully convicted for a lot of reasons. Yes, but some, uh, you're right, true, but, but sometimes but they're wrongfully I think convicted, in general, even though our adversarial system works, um, because truth is hard to figure out, even when you do have all the facts and a jury does their best to sort through it. And I, I agree we're a little off topic here, but, you know, take the January 6th committee. That's not an adversarial process. I think it would be much, much healthier and you would have more people trusting it if even a Jim Jordan were on that committee and could ask his very toughest questions because then you see the best answers to the tough questions, and that makes it a stronger argument, actually. Well, that, it also makes it a circus uh, in, in the particular case of Jim Jordan. I mean, I think cross-examination is a very valuable tool, but it has to be a legitimate cross-examination, not yelling and screaming and political points. But we wanted to turn to a particular um, piece that you wrote, which I found really fascinating, and I think Victor's going to ask some questions about it. This is, why is Congress broken? And I know we're running out of time, so he's going to have to condense his <laughs> questions on this very interesting idea that Congress has stopped compromising and has stopped legislating, so executive orders in the Supreme Court have taken on the roles that they should be fulfilling. So, Victor, take it away. Maybe just on that point, explain to us your premise about how Congress has stopped compromising and how basically the presidency and the Supreme Court kind of have taken over. Yeah, I mean, in short, um, Congress was created by the founders to be the most powerful branch of government. It's Article One in the Constitution for a reason. They never dreamed that Congress would give away its power to the executive branch, but that's exactly what's happened because individual congressmen realized that they were better positioned to win re-election if they never did anything or took a position on anything. You have members of Congress, when they get elected now, instead of using their budgets to hire policy staff, they just hire more communication staff to book them on cable news and talk radio. Um, because then, when your two threats as a member of Congress are, sure, the general election, the other side, but um, we have because of both gerrymandering of the political kind, but also gerrymandering of the very natural kind where people have simply moved into places where they agree with their neighbors. They call it the great sort as a sociological um, feature. Um, incumbents are going to win their general elections. We have the fewest number of competitive congressional seats that we've ever had in the history of the country. So your real threat is from the primary. And what happens in the primary? You get flanked from the base, the, the other side. 
And so you move people more and more to the extremes. They can't compromise because then they'll get flanked in their next primary election. So they can't do anything at all because our whole legislative system is premised on compromise. So what do they do instead? A major problem comes up the United States. Nothing happens in Congress. And they say, Mr. President, you've got to fix this. How can you let down the American people by not addressing this? And the president, time and again, I mean, go back to Barack Obama's famous line. He says he doesn't have the authority to do it. And then when Congress really, really doesn't do anything, he says, well, I got a pen and a phone. And if Congress won't do anything, I will. And so he uses the vast administrative state to create quasi laws those inevitably get challenged in court because it's not what the executive branch was set up to do. It's not in their constitutional prerogative. The courts then become highly politicized because now they're striking down executive branch actions um, that are going to be highly political because, again, the executive branch is only going to step in on those things that are so politically controversial that um, they need some action because there's such a hue and a cry. The Congress does less and less the executive does more and more, and then the courts get pulled into the political fight that they didn't used to be a part of. So what's the solution? <laughs> um, I mean, my solution's pretty simple. The courts need to get out of the business of doing this, and the way they do that is say that the executive branch cannot legislate, really beef up this idea that Congress can't give away its legislative power to the executive branch. And if they do that, there will absolutely be a transition period where Congress still doesn't do anything and the presidency doesn't do anything either. And the hope is that it's like reintroducing wolves into wild into Yellowstone, that it'll take some time, but eventually it gets the elk population in check. That's lets the grass by the rivers grow back up and the beavers come back. And in some reason, in my metaphor, the beavers are Congress. <laughs> so we usually like to end on just general advice for young people, but I feel like based off of our conversation, I want to like reframe it in a way, just looking at my generation and, and some of the things that we grew up with, I feel like there is kind of a disintegration of critical thinking. And I'm wondering what advice you give my generation in terms of how to distinguish between fact and fiction, how to think a little bit more critically and examine the world, uh, uh, not just from like headlines. Steel man. Steel man everything. So if you hear an argument um, and you're inclined to agree with it or you don't know the other side, ask yourself to make the best case for the opposition. So if you think that uh, climate change is the most important problem facing the country, great. Now sit down and write out five bullet points of what the best arguments are for why it's not the most important problem facing our country, whatever that is. If you read an article that presents something that sounds too good to be true, go research and find out what the best argument on the other side is. I wish schools taught, um, you know, we could get rid of so much of high school curriculum and simply teach yeah. Aristotelian yeah. logic and statistics, and I would be much happier. But in the meantime, steel man, learn to steel man. And the better you steel man, the better lawyer you will be, the better citizen you will be, whatever you choose to do in life the more you're able to put yourself in the shoes of someone else and make their arguments the best that you can, the more you'll be able to talk to them, persuade them, engage in those topics, and you'll sound a lot smarter for it. Okay, so this may be one of those intergenerational questions. What is steel man? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so it's the opposite of a straw man. A straw man is where you make a caricature of the uh, other side's right. argument and slice <laughs> okay. it down, but it's only made of straw. A steel man is where you strengthen right. the other side's argument and make it out of steel. Thank you very much. <laughs> you heard it from We Sarah always herself. are looking for the intergenerational perspectives. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was one. Okay, I know straw man, never heard of steel man. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been a really... In enlivening and educational uh, discussion, and I hope you'll come back to have more conversations like this. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of iGen Politics with Sarah Isger. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and that you'll tune in next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, you can follow us wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to us on YouTube, and please leave us a five-star review or rating so that other people can find and listen to this podcast. We thank you again, and we hope to see you next week for another episode of iGen Politics. 
And since so many of you listen on Apple Podcasts, when we tweet about the show, we're going to post the link to Apple Podcasts and hope you'll tune in there. 